After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him and put his own garments on him, and they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Go with me to Luke chapter 23. We'll read verses 26 through 33. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the Skull... There, they crucified him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning as we contemplate the crucifixion of Jesus, you would help us to see the grandeur of your marvelous plan plan that truly doesn't make human sense. It is, as we read in the Valley of Vision, it's not something that humans would invent or come up with. It shows your surpassing wisdom and greatness, your grace and mercy and love towards sinners. I pray that even this day, should there be some in this room who are lost, are dead still in their sins, I pray that you would grant them eyes to see the beauties of the one and only Savior, the one whose name alone under heaven men can be saved by, Jesus. I pray for those who are his already, that we would be granted even greater appreciation and gratitude for what he has done in our stead, and that we would be encouraged to follow after him, taking up our crosses. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, after several years in our chronological harmony of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we come this morning to Jesus' literal meeting with the cross. This moment had been in the mind and heart of God from before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the lamb slain before the world's foundation, Revelation 13.8.
God loved his son from then, John 17, 24, and he had chosen those whom he'd saved from that time. that he was coming, that, that this was coming, this moment that is now before him. Matthew sixteen twenty one. Jesus said, and from that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. Matthew 26, 1 and 2, Jesus said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Jesus has been exceedingly plain regarding what is about to happen. He had been purposefully preparing his disciples for this very moment, a moment which Jesus knew would leave his disciples shocked and aghast, even with all of Jesus' preparations. The one thing that they wanted most to disbelieve was coming to pass. From the beginning of Jesus having told his disciples that this was on the horizon, it was not welcome news to the disciples. Again, that first time when he, we were told in Matthew that he began to speak of this in Matthew 16, it's right after that, we had this read this morning, it's right after that that Peter says to Jesus, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid this, Lord. This shall never happen to you. To which Jesus then replies, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're setting your mind on, not on God's interests, but man's. You see, the one thing that the disciples cannot stomach is the one thing they most need. The sadness and the horror of the crucifixion is also paradoxically the best news ever told. This horrific moment in history is also the best moment. You see, the cross appeared at first glance to be a very unwelcome intrusion to the disciples, yet it was wrapped up in the very purpose for which Jesus had come. And the disciples must not only come to value and appreciate what Jesus was about to do, but they themselves must also learn that this will be their path also. For Jesus said, again in Matthew 16, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said similarly in Luke 14, which we had read this morning, whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You see, they're trying to push away this idea that Jesus would go to the cross, and Jesus is saying, I must do this, and not only that, but you will follow me if you're to be my disciple. So this morning, we travel the road with Jesus to Golgotha in a sermon entitled The Road to Golgotha, we'll split our time between two commands. The first is, look to the trailblazer. Look to the trailblazer. 
You see, we needed something that none of us could accomplish. We needed there to be a way made where there was otherwise no way. It's like Israel on the one side of the Red Sea with Egypt coming towards them. They needed a way across, and there was no way that any of them could accomplish it. They needed a miraculous provision. They needed there to be a way provided which none of them could accomplish. They needed God to intervene. And that's the situation for all of us. We need a miraculous provision of God. We need there to be made a way where there was no way. But what it would require would be God the Son himself taking on flesh, dwelling among us, living as none of us has or will or can, fulfilling all righteousness for us, and then dying in our place. The road that Jesus walked was a road both of, or a path both of humiliation as well as sacrifice. And I want to contemplate both of those for just a moment. The trail that Jesus blazed was, first of all, a path of humiliation. It starts with Jesus being willing to condescend to us. Philippians 2 describes it well. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. This is what we just celebrated at Christmas, right? The incarnation. Jesus humbles himself by taking on flesh and dwelling among us, emptying himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And now here at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, in a matter of just a few hours, Jesus had, number one, been betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot, for some 30 pieces of silver. After his betrayal, Judas regrets it, takes the money back, throws it into the temple, goes out and hangs himself, saying that Jesus was innocent. He says, I betrayed innocent blood. Jesus was then arrested by guards, but by Jesus' willing consent, as is proven by the fact that when they, he asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am. And they all fall down on their backs. And no one's taking Jesus by force, right? Jesus willingly goes with them. And after Peter attempts a pretty futile attempt at trying to fight off the guards and lops off Malchus's ear, Jesus heals the ear and tells Peter, put your sword away. You see, if Jesus wanted to, he could have called down legions of angels and have taken care of all of that. He could have spoken a word and it would have all been done. Jesus willingly is arrested by the guards. He's then put before Annas, the high priest's father-in-law. Then subsequently, he goes before the high priest himself, Caiaphas, and then before the entire Sanhedrin, in which he is ultimately condemned to die, even though the testimonies that are spoken are all false and they don't agree. Jesus is brought before Pilate. He's accused of treason. He's said to have made himself out to be the king of Jews. He's said to have discouraged the people from paying taxes to Caesar, an outright lie. Pilate surveys the situation. He doesn't see anything worthy of death in Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to be some political revolutionary. There's no one beating down the gates trying to free Jesus. The only mob before Pilate is a group of people wanting Jesus dead. Pilate would rather not have to make a decision on this matter, and so he attempts to punt it over to Herod. 
He finds out that Jesus is from Galilee, and that's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's in town, probably for the Passover, and so off to Herod Jesus goes. Herod's excited to see Jesus. He's been longing to meet with Jesus, but he doesn't even get a word out of Jesus. Jesus won't even say one word to Herod. Herod's disgusted. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's forced to come to a decision. His wife says, don't do anything with this man. I've had bad dreams about him. There's something about this guy. Don't have anything to do with him. Pilate attempts a compromise with the angry mob. It never works. He says, how about I just scourge him badly? How about I beat him up? Again, he's innocent. I don't find anything wrong with him. This is all a travesty of justice. So they whip Jesus. They beat him up. They clothe him in a purple robe or scarlet robe. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They genuflect in front of him. They say, oh, hail king of the Jews. They mock him. They spit him, spit at him. They beat him. And then Pilate brings him back out in front of the crowds and says, behold, the man, here he is. Is this the guy that you're so afraid of? Is this the guy who's a political revolutionary? He looks pathetic. Haven't I done enough? But like frenzied sharks that smell blood in the water, the religious leaders and crowd cry out for nothing less than crucifixion. Pilate then remembers, oh yeah, this is about that time of year where I release a prisoner to you. I'll make this decision exceedingly obvious. You can have him or you can have Barabbas, a known murderer, a known insurrectionist. You're concerned about this guy being a traitor to Rome? We know Barabbas is. We know Barabbas is a murderer. And the crowd cries out that Barabbas be freed and that Jesus be killed. Pilate repeatedly says that Jesus is innocent three, four, five times. He says, I can't find anything worthy of guilt in this man. Yet he eventually gives in to the people's demands because they claim that they'll go right to Caesar with the matter. And they'll tell Caesar that you, Pilate, aren't upholding Caesar's interest in this region because you allowed a person who claimed to be king to live. When Pilate asks them, what shall I do with your king? They say, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. Now Jesus is mocked, he's stripped of the robe, he's dressed in his own clothing, which will just subsequently, once he gets to the cross, be stripped off of him again. But he is the, that robe is removed from him, he's put back in his old clothes, and they mock him some more. They don't waste even one opportunity of poking fun at him. Here's a case in which these people really don't know who they're dealing with. One day there will be a certain fearful realization of who they are dealing with. I'm sure they already are very well aware of who they were dealing with now. But Jesus was not only willing to be mocked and scorned and spit upon and beaten, but he was ultimately willing to pay the dearest price, offering up himself as a sacrifice. That's the second thing I want you to see here. It's a path of sacrifice, not only humiliation, but a path of sacrifice. He was willing to offer himself up for us. Philippians 2.8 Continues on, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willingly led by the soldiers to Golgotha. No one could force him there. 
ever seen pictures of like, you know, a, a little child with like a huge dog, like a Great Dane, or a little child with like a horse? You know, there is a real sense in which if that dog or horse did not go, want to go in the region that the child was leading that dog or horse, it would not go, right? I mean, it's a pretend thing that the child's leading the dog or horse. If the dog or horse did not want to go that direction, they would not go. And similarly here, in a much more infinite sense, there's no way Jesus goes to Golgotha because of a show of force from soldiers. He willingly goes. Those who thought themselves to be in charge were sadly mistaken. No one could take Jesus' life from him. He willingly gave it up. This is manifest in earlier occasions in the Gospels where people wanted to put Jesus to death and he slips away and they can't find him, right? I mean, he could just become invisible if he wanted to, right? I mean, he could do whatever he wanted. He could perform any miracle he wanted. He could blind the crowds. He could walk through the midst of them. He could do whatever he wanted. He chose willingly to go. You see, everyone else's life is demanded of them. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Adam and Eve were told, if you eat from the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will surely die. And there was definitely a spiritual death that happened right then, but also physical death began at that moment. And all of us die as a wage for our sin. But Jesus never sinned. He always did everything that the Father told him to. Death could not be demanded of Jesus. Jesus willingly gave up his life. No one else can say that. He died as a substitutionary sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was willing to offer himself up for us. He was willing to suffer in our place. Everything about the death that Jesus died reeked of suffering. If you slow down and think about it, for just a moment, we're so familiar with the cross. I mean, it more than the ichthus or any other symbol is the symbol of Christianity, right? If there was one symbol we speak of, it would be the cross. But sometimes we become so familiar with it that we don't realize what it really was back then. Before it was invested with new meaning and new significance for us. It's a beautiful and treasured thing to us. But what was it back then? The cross was invented as a means to inflict the most horrific, excruciating death on an individual. Modern forms of capital punishment are nothing compared to this. Firing squads end things quite quickly. Hanging by the neck usually renders one dead quickly as their neck snaps, or they suffocate within a few minutes. Electric chairs and lethal injections get the job done even quicker. In ancient times, the Jewish practice of stoning, which seems pretty brutal, could also render someone unconscious if they got hit in the head rightly, to which then the killing blow they might not even feel. Again, relatively speaking, much more humane. The cross was invented on purpose to be one of the most painful, excruciating ways to die as a person fought for life while they were slowly dying. They typically died not from loss of blood, but from asphyxiation, uh, dying from lack of oxygen, suffocating. As the crucified would have to pull their bodies up in order to take a breath, the only way to do so is by resting more weight upon the nails, piercing through their hands or wrists, or pushing up through their ankles, where oftentimes there was another spike driven through them. 
already super painful areas where now they're exerting energy and strength to just take a breath. Every year, passion dramas are done in an attempt to try to give a visual remembrance of Jesus' crucifixion. Movie writers and directors have gone to great lengths to try to visually capture the horror of crucifixion. Because to be honest, it's something that our culture is largely ignorant of. Perhaps you have read one of those medical descriptions of crucifixion. I'm going to spare you that this morning. I remember the first time I read one of those, I literally felt sick to my stomach as I read through all of the various descriptions as done by a doctor. Some have said, the person who is crucified dies a thousand deaths. Edersheim said, crucifixion was invented to make death as painful and as lingering as the power of human endurance. The cross was the most disgraceful and one of the most cruelest, one of the cruelest instruments of death ever invented. It's an instrument of excruciating torture. Perhaps the modern parallel that's gotten a lot of media coverage today is the waterboard. Maybe the waterboard is a good way for us to get at this a little bit. Trying to make a person feel like they're dying for a long period of time. But it's this, the cross, that we look to with joy. This is because God forever proved his love to sinful man by sending his son to die in their place in the most painful, the most humiliating way imaginable. Remember as well, God is sovereign over all things. Certainly he was sovereign over the timing in which he sent his son. Why then? In fact, the Bible describes it as the fullness of time, the perfect time, the right time. God sent his son. God sent his son precisely when he wanted to. For no one could force God to send him any earlier or any later than what he wanted. The time he planned was not in a day and culture like ours, but during the Roman Empire when the worst sort of death imaginable existed. We read in Matthew 27, 34, that they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. We read it in Mark 15, verse 23, that it was mixed with myrrh. After tasting it, Jesus rejects it. He won't drink any. It's possible. There's a couple of different ways that people have approached this drink of wine mixed with gall slash myrrh. Some have seen it as an act of mockery. They're giving him nasty wine, and it was just a mockery towards him. Others explain that this was some sort of primitive narcotic, a mixture meant to deaden pain. I, I uh, agree with the latter perspective. This was some amount of help to one who's suffering the excruciating pains of crucifixion. We don't know who gave this to Jesus. This is part of the debate as well. If it was from the soldiers who were mocking Jesus, it seems unlikely that they would have given him something to help with the pain but if it was one of the surrounding throng somebody from the crowd that's gathered all around this it makes a little bit more sense we do have here pictured as we'll see in a minute a bunch of ladies who are weeping and wailing in the crowd as jesus is going through so whether or not whatever their tears were directed towards and we'll see how jesus redirects those in a minute there seems to be some amount of sympathy for this situation, whether or not it's specifically towards Jesus or just the horrors of what crucifixion 
was. But anyone who's ever encountered any extreme trauma due to accidental injury or sickness or recuperation from surgery knows what a welcome relief pain medications are. Ever been there before? Can you imagine the pain associated with crucifixion? All of a sudden, a migraine headache doesn't seem so bad anymore, does it? Oh, and those are awful. I don't mean to lessen them. I think I thank God for the uh, wonderful invention of ibuprofen. You just take the edge off of pain when that comes on. How much more would some painkiller be a welcome respite for one who's being crucified? Yet Jesus refuses it. I find such irony here. Jesus refuses. He's unwilling to drink a cup of wine mixed with myrrh, but he's willing to drink a cup full of God's wrath. He tastes that wine mixed with myrrh and he refuses it. But having tasted the cup of God's wrath, he receives it in full measure upon himself. He refuses even the smallest solace, the smallest comfort in the midst of suffering, but he won't shirk away from providing every comfort to those who call upon his name. He saves to the uttermost those who trust in him. He blazed a trail which none of us can blaze. He made a way where there otherwise was no way. You see, we can receive comfort because he refused it. He suffered so that we might be healed. Having looked at Jesus, what are we now to do? You believe in Christ, you trust in Christ, making you one of his disciples. But what, what does a disciple do? And so that gets me a second command this morning. You follow the leader. You follow the leader. Who, is, who of us has not played this game? You know, I mean, it's like classic. When you don't know anything else to do and you have a lot of little kids, unless you're playing Quiet Water, Still Water, which is a favorite of David McClellan's and I's, mine, um, if you don't have that one, then follow the leader is a good second runner-up. As a child, there's something fun about following the footsteps of someone older than you, someone older, wiser, stronger, more experienced, mimicking their every action. Their every motion, their every step. Whether you're playing that game or not, all of us are learning from one another. All of us are imitating one another in one fashion or another. But there's no one more worth following than Jesus. But the road to Golgotha, as you see here, is not an easy road. A Christian is one who, by God's grace, has been granted belief in Jesus. They see Jesus. They treasure Jesus. They love Jesus. God's changed their hearts. They've been born again to a living hope, and they can't imagine life without Jesus. But living with Jesus means following Jesus, and following Jesus means going through the shadow of the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death. It means traveling the road to Golgotha. It means taking up One's cross and following him. Jesus is followed on this occasion by two sets of people, or a, I guess a a person and and then a set or group of people. There's a group of mourners, and then there is a cross bearer. And I want to spend just a moment on each of those. The first we talk to is the group of mourners, the daughters of Jerusalem. And with this, I want you to see that Jesus redirects sorrows 
In following the leader, our sorrows are redirected. Now, Jesus is walking towards Golgotha, and in the midst of all of this, there's a crowd of people, and in particular, there's a group of ladies who are weeping and mourning and lamenting. Jesus stops, he turns around, and he looks at them, and he says, stop weeping. And then he goes on to say, and start weeping. Stop weeping for me. Start weeping for you and for your children. He warns that there's coming a day in which those who don't have children will be considered the blessed ones. Now, note this. I mean, certainly we still have vestiges of this today, but in our increasingly selfish culture where children are considered a plight rather than a blessing, um, sometimes we lose track of this. Understand that to be barren was like the worst thing you could be. To not have children was awful in those days. And Jesus says there's coming a day in which those people will be considered the blessed ones. What's he saying? He's saying there's going to be such an outpouring of wrath and difficulty that the pain of loss of seeing your children die, you're going to wish that they were never born. Blessed are those wombs which never give birth. Blessed are those breasts that never nurse, he says. There's coming a judgment in which people will wish for mountains to fall on them and for the hills to cover them. For Jesus argues, if in prosperous times things like this are going on, what will happen when things get difficult? We could say it this way. If Jesus, the innocent one, had become the object of such suffering, what is in store for those who are actually guilty? If Jesus, the innocent one, would see this, what's in store for those who are genuinely guilty he says it this way if green or moist wood is burned what do you think will happen to old dry wood ever had a campfire and you put a log on there and it was just soaked in water and all of a sudden you realize real quick how hard it is to burn that thing and the difference between that and dry crumbly old wood is like it takes hardly anything in it set ablaze Jesus' point to these people is to say that their weeping is misdirected. If God the Father would not spare his own son, then what do you suppose is coming to those who refuse to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus? So often this is still the problem today. People are saddened by the wrong things. Sometimes I sadly have experienced this in parenting For I realize at some moment or another, one of my children is more saddened by the consequence of losing something as a result of something they've done than the disrespect and dishonor they've shown me. In those moments, we see where idolatry comes up into the heart, right? Because they love the thing that they're losing more than they love their father, who they should be in obedience to. Start identifying idolatry. And it's not just in our children, is it? It's in us, too. Our sorrow is often misplaced. It may be that Jesus has in mind the events that are shortly coming for that generation, A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, the untold numbers of Jews that were killed, and all the events surrounding that when Rome does all of those things. But it's also possible that Jesus intends this as a warning to people of all ages looking toward the final judgment, Especially that 
a description of the mountains falling on them and the desire that the hills would cover them up. It, it brings to mind Revelation 6, where it speaks of the wicked on the day of judgment, saying that to the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come and who is able to stand. Jesus is saying, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. It's as if Jesus is saying, you weep for me while failing to see that you're the ones in the desperate strait. I'm going to die in the place of sinners, the very condition that all of you presently suffer from. Mourn your own state. Ask that God grant you godly sorrow that you might weep over your own sin and cry out to be saved. Jesus doesn't desire some sentimentality or some sympathy. People who watch movies on the passion, the crucifixion of Jesus, who do so just to evoke some tears from their eyes, thinking about the pain associated with crucifixion. And then misplaced weeping, ultimately, if they're not weeping over their own sin. Edersheim says, when a sense of sin has been awakened in us, we shall mourn, not for what Christ has suffered, but for what he suffered for us. Our sorrows are redirected. The second thing is that our service is reimagined. And we see this from the other individual who is following Jesus, Simon the Cyrene. He's not mentioned in John, but he's mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This passerby is pressed into service. John only speaks of Jesus carrying the cross, while the synoptics speak of Simon's participation. It's most likely that Jesus bore his cross for some period of time, however short, and it became evident after the excessive beating that he received that he would be unable to carry it all the way to Golgotha, thus needing someone to transport it to the place of the skull. Golgotha in Hebrew, and we get the word Calvary, that's the Latin word for Golgotha. Calvaria is the Latin for Golgotha. So Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull, all referring to the same place. The picture here is that Simon is minding his own business when suddenly his day was completely changed. And perhaps his entire life. We don't know for certain. Speak more on that in just a moment. But here is a case of either, depending on your perspective, being in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place in the right time. There's Simon, a passerby from the country, from the area of Cyrene, and suddenly he is pressed into service. The idea there of being pressed into service is he's being forced to serve. He's being ordered to do this. We're told in one of the Gospels that he was seized and pressed into service. In other words, perspective being he was fighting against this he was not wanting to do this but as i think about that i I wonder even in our own life how many of us might describe our own conversion in similar ways i was minding my own business i was passing by and suddenly i was seized by the gospel and pressed into service here is a nobody doing the lowliest thing We don't know much about Simon. He's described as a man from Cyrene who lived in the country. He's most likely a Jewish Passover pilgrim. He's probably in Jerusalem because of Passover. Mark tells us that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
Many people believe that Mark was writing to an audience in Rome. If that is the case, then why mention these two individuals? Well, the most likely reason is because they would be familiar with these two guys, with Alexander and Rufus. Why mention them by name otherwise? Another interesting thing is when Paul writes to Rome in Romans 16.13, he mentions Rufus. And he also mentions Rufus's mother, who had been a support to Paul, which would have been Simon's wife, if that connection is all the same. An interesting connection that Mark speaks of it, his letters to Rome, the letter from Paul to Rome mentions Rufus. And so this is where, again, we don't know for certain, but this is where I say, depending on your perspective, he was either exactly in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time. And it is quite possible that this had an eternal significance on his life and his family's life. He's, giving a ta- he's given a task that no one's jumping to do, though. It's most likely the reason why he was pressed into service. No Roman guard would be you know, caught with the scandal, the shame of carrying a cross. The person who was being crucified always carried their own cross, symbol of their guilt upon their back as they carried it to the point of death. They're carrying their own instrument of death to death. Yet this lowliest of tasks, when viewed from a worldly perspective, is a supreme honor when viewed from the heavenly perspective. It makes me think of all sorts of other things that this world views as low and base that God views in a completely different light. We hear Jesus saying even giving someone a cup of water or a warm blanket or a pair of shoes. You might extrapolate with a pair of shoes, but a pair of shoes or a used car or whatever the thing might be. Giving time to help in a soup kitchen, collecting cans for a food drive, visiting someone in prison, showing mercy to someone in a hospital, looking to adopt a child. Things which may never receive many thanks here, if any, but may rebound with rewards untold in heaven. In fact, those things which appear the lowest I believe, will probably be the things most richly rewarded in heaven, those things not known by anyone, which our Father in heaven sees. But perhaps another way to view Simon's interesting role in this story is that Jesus was chosen to die when it should have been Barabbas, right? Barabbas is the murderer, but Barabbas goes free because Jesus dies in the place of murderers. So Jesus did not die for for a yoke of his own sins. He died for the yoke of our sins. Perhaps we can identify with Simon carrying our own burden of sin, realizing that we can't get rid of it. Only Jesus can ultimately deal with it. It makes me think of John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress and how Christian has a burden that he can't get rid of. The only way that it comes off of his back is by his coming to the cross and then it falls from his back. You know, the thing that's most astounding about this whole situation is the way that the Bible speaks of the actual moment of Jesus' crucifixion. 
what is told us of all of the excruciating physical pain? What, what is told us regarding all of the torture? Now, you might argue that people of that day would be familiar with crucifixion and know what all came with that. But all that we're told here is, and they crucified him. All four Gospels include this detail, yet the record of it is so matter-of-fact, we're not given much detail at all. There's such a surprising economy of words to describe what we might argue is the central event of history. And they crucified him. John says, there they crucified him. Mark says, he uses in present tense verbs, this is common for Mark, it's kind of like a sportscaster giving the play-by-play. He says, and they crucify him. Luke, the doctor, doesn't give us any further insight. They crucified him. Matthew uses the participial form of crucify, describing the conditions under which Jesus' garments were divided up by casting lots. Literally, Matthew reads, and having crucified him, they divided up his garments by casting lots. Again, seemingly giving more attention to the dividing of his garments than the crucifixion. Yet everything's pointing to this moment. Well, forward and backward, everything points to this moment. The only thing that comes even close to this sort of small description for, the, for an enormously large, massive thing is creation. There's one writer who said, um, when God says, and he made, you know, and the stars, you know, and the stars? You mean millions and trillions of stars and galaxies? Yeah, and he made, and the stars. But at least with creation, he takes a chapter to talk about it. Here we've got a phrase. And they crucified him. What application might we draw from that observation? What do we learn from the surprising shortness with which the Gospels record Jesus' crucifixion? You see, while it's true that his body was crucified, it becomes clear that the story does not center on the physical realities of what Jesus experienced there. I mean in no way to remove them, and since we're so absent from them, we've spent a little time talking about that slightly this morning. But I only want here to make sure that we emphasize what is most important, for Jesus isn't the only one who experienced crucifixion. There are others who experienced crucifixion as well. Why don't we remember the cross for them? Why is the cross given such meaning some still some 2,000 years later. Well, you see, it's not the cross itself that's so important, but who it was that died there and why. You see, this was not just some man. This was the perfect lamb of God hanging from the tree. The righteous one dying for the as if unrighteous. The sinless one dying as if a sinner. The innocent one dying as if guilty. Jesus did all of this. He suffered, he bled, he died in order that he might restore the unrighteous. That he might redeem sinners. That he might rescue the guilty. Jesus takes the curse upon himself that sinners might be blessed. 
Jesus took God's wrath upon himself for every sinner who repents and believes in him. He died to purchase their freedom. He died to grant them forgiveness. He died to give them life. You notice that in our church, we don't have crucifixes. We don't have little statues of Jesus placed upon crosses. Why not? The reason is quite simple. Jesus is no longer on the cross. Jesus died there, yes, but his sacrifice was once for all, never to be repeated, ever, ever, ever to be repeated. He fulfilled all that the sacrifice of the Old Testament ever pointed forward to. It was all pointing to him. Leviticus 16.34, Israel's commanded, Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. They're on the Day of Atonement once every year, perpetually for Israel, now fulfilled in Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, no further sacrifice is needed. And to institute anything of that sort at all would be to fail to recognize what Jesus has accomplished. Hebrews 7 says it so well, verses 26 and 27. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when offering up himself. You see, he neither needed to put a sacrifice for himself before going in because he was already holy. And when he laid himself down, when he gave up his life, when he offered up himself, he did it once for all. And as Hebrews 9.12 says, he obtained an eternal redemption through his own blood, entering the holy place once for all. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all. For all, the just for the unjust, so that it bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yes, Jesus was crucified. And yes, he died. And yes, he was buried. But his crucifixion is finished. His work is accomplished. His grave is empty. Death has been vanquished. You see, a crucified, dead, and buried Savior can't help you, but a risen one can. For this sorrow of Jesus' death would soon give way to a glorious resurrection morning. As Lockridge said it, death could not handle him, and the grave could not hold him. Will you look to this trailblazer? Will you look to Jesus? And having looked, will you believe in him? Will you trust in him? Will you submit to him? And will you find your deepest joy in following him? That's my prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your Son. With such economy of words, you speak of his crucifixion. But there needed to be nothing else said. He was crucified. As we'll see in coming weeks, he completed the work, he completed the task. It is finished. Lord, I pray that we would honor you. I pray that we would be quick to point people to the one and only Savior. 
that they would weep for the right reason, that they would weep, they would mourn over their own sin, their spiritual bankruptcy, their need for Jesus. I pray that that godly sorrow would drive them to genuine repentance and that you'd grant them eyes to see and hearts that they would believe in Jesus. Whether that's in this room right now or through the witness of one of these here, may we be clear that it is not by our works that a man is saved, but by the precious work, the finished work of Jesus in our stead. Proud in his name. Amen.